0: So welcome to It Is What It Is. I'm Corbin.
1: And I'm Anthony.
0: The topic for this week I thought could be <laughs> metanarrative and narrative. We throw the word narrative around quite a bit. It's a term that you and I are comfortable with. I'm not sure that we've really defined it between us. Uh, you know, in philosophy, there's raging debates about whether it's a legitimate concept or, or how it should be used. Sometimes people think it's overused. And so maybe it is kind of jargony. But I did want to look at why we might be using narrative and look at Jean-Francois Lyotard's The Postmodern Condition, the concept of a meta-narrative that uh, helps guide and and legitimize sub-narratives. So I want to jump into this topic, but I want to give you a a second to kind of expound on why you enjoy or what you think narrative means to you and, and why we use it so much.
1: I think narrative is fundamental to like the human experience. I think like the only reason you get into sports is because you've developed some sort of, you know, some sort of story of what's happening in front of you. Otherwise it's just not interesting. Like we're, it's, it's our very nature to tell stories and to, so I think it's also our nature to fabricate stories as well. Part of my job, right. Is to, uh, help people understand and come to terms with the world around them. Um, and I have to tease out their own experience from that. And the only way that, that usually becomes effective is if, is if I pull on the right strings, the right narrative structure for that person, and then they, you know, come to understand what concept it is I'm teaching or, uh, what concept it is they're experiencing in, in terms of science.
0: Good. I'm glad that you uh, framed it in that sense of uh, uh, self-understanding, a sense of understanding of the world around us. I think that's really capturing how I view the importance of narrative. Uh, We try to put the pieces together, right? We have individual experiences, we have single data points, uh, whether this is individual or collective, there's occasions that occur, but we want to make sense of it all. And I think the the common thing is to tell a story of our lives, to have a, a autobiography kind of that we tell ourselves, or to have a collective history and how we understand our society. And then of course there's also the natural history, and this is kind of where the debate uh, tends to rage, is, is it right to think of uh, humans trying to understand the world around them in terms of narrative, or is scientific explanation something other than narrative? Is there something more Objective and, and concrete or or non perspectival that science provides that maybe narrative doesn't give enough credence to and I think that's that's where we want to enter into this question of meta narrative.
1: I as a scientist or former scientist whatever whatever people want to define me as I define myself jerks. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I want. There to be this like, you know, objective, no narrative, uh, view of the universe, like everything in the universe, this is just how it is. There's no narrative to it. Um, but I think ac- you might have accidentally done this to me. I like no longer, <laughs> I like no longer believe that I, I'm starting to believe that like, maybe there is no such thing as like objective reality. And there's just like layers of perception. and. uh you know, narrative is certainly one of those things that alters perception of things. You tell you ask two people to recount a situation and each person has a different viewpoint of that situation. Now, maybe there's like a camera there and that and you could say that that camera might be observing objectively, but also at the same time, that camera has a perception because it's got this one specific angle. It it can't see out of its view. And so you can only extrapolate so much from that from that thing which we think is an objective, but then there's also the viewer right the viewer of the footage they take their own perception on on what they're seeing and they interpret it and so i I'm no longer starting to I, I no longer agree that there's like objective universe maybe there is, but we'll never be able to see it because no matter as soon as you enter into a, a viewpoint on it then it, then you have like a perspective. On it, and then you know, objectivity goes out the window.
0: Yeah, I'll just, um, from my my perspective, I will just qualify that I think there is an objective reality in the metaphysical sense that there's something out there that's separate from the way that we think of it, and that is the kind of the sea that we swim in. But when we talk about objective reality or objective understanding then I think we're not talking about the reality itself. We're talking about our understanding or explanation of that reality. And so now it's kind of a kind of a layer on top of that reality, which is how do we how do we break up that reality into parts? How do we understand how those parts are related? How do we understand how we fit into that reality? And there's there's problems with the analogies I've used already, um, but before I don't really want to dive into all those kind of Technical debates. I just want to distinguish between, like, the the world, the reality, metaphysics, and our knowledge, our understanding, our stories about reality, uh, which is typically called epistemology.
1: Yeah, I think that's uh, really important, and I don't want to go too deep into to this whole uh, realm, but I think narrative does play into that because, as I said earlier, you know, narrative helps shape our understanding but it also allows us to communicate our understanding to others, which then affects their understanding. Um, example, I guess, with basketball, right, is we, uh, we collect basketball stats. And um, we use those stats to tell stories about players. You know, Giannis is the MVP because he has X, Y, and Z stats. And then you can come in and say, well, you know, I think LeBron's the MVP because there's this other stat that you're not taking into account. Um, and so we're using these numbers, which might be, you know, objective reality, depending on how you define it, to to kind of argue our own viewpoints or, you know, disprove our own viewpoints. It really depends on on what narrative you're going for here. And I think that's a really important part of this conversation.
0: Yeah, actually, that sets it up very well for for the introduction of Leotard. So- Uh, Leotard was in the writing in the 60s uh, writing an epistemology project about universal um, or global perspectives on science and understanding and noticing that there were conflicts among different cultures about which stories to accept uh, politically and debates about scientific theory which theories should should take the day and, and which data to accept as supporting which theories and he kind of articulated that in the in the modern age we wanted a story that could tie everything together. So yes, of course, we only all each have a part of the story, but there has to be some master meta-narrative that can explain how everything fits together and legitimizes all our individual stories or in individual pursuits and in scientific discovery. Uh, and it's that question of legitimation that he, he wants to bring into question and into challenge. And so he said uh, basically that, whereas religion in the past and maybe science for the modern age provided this this view that we could explain everything and have some way to justify every every piece of understanding and every viewpoint that we took, the the postmodern age came to be skeptical of those stories because they found ways that it, they were incommensurable; they didn't match up with other. Stories that were supposed to explain everything, or there were certain uh, experiences that couldn't be accounted for in those meta narratives, and they were being excluded because they didn't fit the picture. So, the postmodern condition, he said, is a challenging or questioning of overarching meta narratives that are supposed to, to verify what's real and what's legitimate and what's not. Uh, a lot of people have taken that kind of challenge to meta meta-narrative, metanarrative to therefore throw out all forms of legitimation. There's a, a huge skepticism and in, in strong postmodern schools of thought that say that there's no norms. There's no, no power structures. I mean, there's nothing but power structures. So anytime somebody tries to tell you that something's right or good or worthwhile, uh, that you ought to or should do anything, they're just trying to control you. And uh, so this rejection of meta-narratives has often led to a rejection of norms and legitimacy altogether. I'm not I'm not down with that. <laughs> I, I really feel like uh, we can still talk about norms and validity and legitimacy and just uh, recognize that there may be reasons to be skeptical of meta-narratives because ultimately they're always constructed from finite points of view. So we could be wrong about those meta-narratives. And so I I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I'm I'm a fan of keeping the idea of norms and legitimacy, but now we have to be able to explain them when there's no overarching meta narrative to give them their their value.
1: I think communication only works when there are norms, um, and I actually teach this in my communicating science class, um, not as I just articulated, because the the ideas uh, and play of norms in narrative has only recently been illuminated to me it's one of the things that i'm learning as we do this this podcast series is uh the importance of norms um <laughs> but you know if you if you try and articulate a specific viewpoint let's say it's like something of great scientific importance like the covid crisis right um, the only way that you're really going to be effective in communication is if you relate it to the person that you're communicating with. You know, We're having this two-way conversation, right? I'm trying to communicate something to you about the COVID crisis. The only way that I'm going to be effective is if I, I put it in your terms. And without understanding the norms that govern your life, I will never hit that mark. Mm. You know, I, I won't be able to put it into your terms if I don't understand how your world operates and i think that's where the norms come in 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 nicely and then you think about communicating with other cultures you have to have a whole different strategy because there's a whole different set of norms that operates in that culture and so that's where um i totally agree with you and once you started mentioning this d uh, delegitimizing, I was like, "Whoa!" I, I I almost fell back out of my chair. here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I'm out, Corbin. We're dumping this.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, no, I think that's good. Um, I do want to tie this into to Bestwell. I think Bestwell sets us up for a nice, casual conversation about this. So, if there was a meta narrative guiding which what's a legitimate way to view, for instance, the championship then I think it would be a matter of fans accepting that narrative and rooting for the best team or the team that's most deserving of a championship and anybody else is just being obstinate and (laughs) antisocial. But in fact, I think that there's a lot of reasons to uh, root for particular teams, and there's no one team that's the most deserving of a championship. And I think taking into account the various reasons and the fact that they can be weighed in different de- to different degrees helps set up all those fun you know bar room debates where people say no this this person's more deserving or this team's more deserving uh, it's a lot of fun because there is no meta narrative that settles the question
1: i only learned <laughs> yesterday that um that they were doing like awards for the bubble and so like i learned that you know damian lillard won i guess instead of calling it mvp they're calling it player of the bubble which probably a little bit more fitting um and i can't argue that he doesn't deserve that but when you're looking at like the eight game sample um maybe you know you could make the argument for tj warren or devin booker Uh, but you can only really make any of those arguments for any of those three players if you include like you could i was arguing earlier that stats can be their own narrative but let's let's pretend that that's not true. Let's pretend that stats are stats and that they're objective reality. Um, I think you can only make a case for any of those players when you take into context other narratives of their performances. You know, Damian Lillard had like a couple of 50-point games, and he got his team from ninth place to eighth place, and he got his team to the play-in. Devin Booker, you can make the case... Uh, for him, based only on the fact that the Suns won eight games in a row, and he was the best player on that team, so you take the best player on the best team kind of argument. And T.J. Warren was a guy who came out of nowhere, who was like, you know, riding the pine and maybe averaging twenty points a game, but then he started like going off for fifty-point games out of nowhere. Right. And so there's like this underdog underdog story. So
0: there's competing competing narratives, and so. Even though one person won the award, you could you could see why somebody might say that someone else was more deserving. Uh, even if you disagree, like we can come to take the perspective of a different narrative and, and a different um, emphasis of values. And so, is it the winning most winning team, which is obviously the Suns? Is it the team that had the uh, biggest impact, or you know the biggest jump? The thing that matters most, which would be getting into the playoffs for the Blazers. Or is it the player who statistically just put up the most phenomenal numbers? And considering his his level of competition and the fact that he was doing some of this before the bubble, I don't think it's completely undeserving to, to recognize. It's not like it was a fluke that TG, TJ Warren was was performing so well. And the question is, can he sustain it? But there's arguments that can be made for all three of these. So I'll just say real quickly, um, I think what intrigued me about this question and bringing up narratives is I don't know who to root for <laughs> in the playoffs. Like, I have been a LeBron fan for many years and kind of thought this was the year for the Lakers. But I'm also a fan of really good stories. And I've never rooted for a team for geographical or personal reasons. It's always been who has the best story this year. And so the storyline that I'm captivated by is the Toronto Raptors facing off against the Clippers so they can play against Hawaii who helped them get a championship last year. I feel like that would be a really compelling final series because of all the storylines that would come into play. Uh, but there are other good storylines. So is is that what I should root for? Is it the best storyline
1: or the best player? What do you think? Oh man, that's such a good question. Um, I guess pick yeah. your wonkiest favorite player and just and root for that team. That's what I always do. <laughs> nice.
0: I do think that something that. I I think that the NBA has been really good at recognizing the importance of narrative. So kind of like, uh, and you've talked about this before, a comparison to wrestling, like they enjoy selling the stories when there's a beef between players, (laughs) when there's a, something to hope for for a particular player, maybe they're playing for uh, an increase in their salary or being moved to another team. The NBA doesn't shy away from that. They don't just focus on the games. The storylines seem to really matter. And maybe that's true in other sports. I, I feel like it's becoming more true, but I think the NBA has been doing this for a long time. And that's part of why it's, it's so interesting. Like history is such an integral part of the game because of the stories in that history.
1: Part of the reason why the NBA stories have become so compelling is that there's like, you know, 24-7, 365 tracking of what's going on in the NBA. You know, free agency, the draft... Uh, the off season training, all that stuff. And uh, earlier this week, the Clippers, Paul George, like, I guess they, they beat the the Blazers by just a few points. And Paul George like took a shot over at Dame Lillard and Dame Lillard uh, took a shot back saying, yeah, I keep switching teams, which has <laughs> been like one of the most like unspoken player narratives, but, Within the media, it's like the most spoken player narrative is like, oh, do we put an asterisk next to this guy's career because he went from the Thunder to the Warriors and now to the Nets? Or do we, like, (laughs) legitimize him as a, you know, a champion and a great player? And uh, the fact that Dame, who's like, you know, top five in the NBA right now, <laughs> takes a shot at, the, at another top five player for that very reason, I thought was like compelling. And I'm like, oh, this dude's all in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, the competition that we enjoy isn't just on the, uh, on the court. It's also in, in wit and in ferocity and intensity. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of different ways that we can enjoy the, the sport.
1: Uh, but going, on, you know, further with the narrative thing is um, typically the NBA, I, it does a good job advertising and marketing the narratives. But I don't think it does a good enough job because typically, um, at least from like a general fan perspective, the narrative that they tie in is usually some goofy movie, uh, like summer blockbuster that they tie in is like, we'll we'll show some scenes of the Avengers and intersperse some scenes of of Chris Paul and James Harden and our superstars (laughs) doing stuff. And so you get this, like, you know, these guys are heroes kind of comparison. Um, but just thinking about this year's playoffs, you know, if you go beyond the, it's gotta be LeBron and Giannis in the finals, how compelling would that be? Uh, you realize that there's like a good number of storylines that can happen. I mean, first we have Chris Paul versus James Harden in the first round of the playoffs. And those two, Those two were teammates last season and Russell Westbrook is on the other team and he got traded for Chris Paul. So, you know, there's gotta be some animosity going on there. Uh, Like you mentioned Toronto with Kawhi, that could be a finals matchup and we're all hoping that that could work out. And now there's the, the Paul George Dame Lillard beef that's going on. (laughs) Um, Can the Blazers upset the Lakers in the first round? um what about Luka Doncic he's been like MVP caliber player all season what can he do in the playoffs this is his first playoff run and by the way he's only in his second season yeah like there's so many storylines that the NBA uh could be highlighting and even and making even more dramatic and I think that that's what's best for basketball
0: yeah absolutely and it's uh you focused a lot on the teams on the west and I think that's probably right they're they're the stronger uh, conference but even in the East, there's the T.J. Warren, who is excellent in the bubble, is playing his, his kryptonite. Jimmy Butler seems to be the only player that can get under his skin, and they're playing in the first round. So that's, that could be an interesting series. We have Giannis, who's kind of been seen as an angel and a hero for so many years, got suspended <laughs> this week for headbutting another player, and the, the Bucks are not playing well. So all of a sudden, the, the presumptive favorite and the best team, the best record for the year, may not necessarily be the team that people are rooting for anymore. Uh, I kind of wanted to see him get his ring and felt like he's worked so hard to get here, but I'm kind of rooting against Giannis this, this time, even though that's been who I've been rooting for, for four years or so.
1: Mm -hmm. Boston is without Kyrie Irving for their first year. And uh, the Nets are also without Kyrie Irving and (laughs) Kevin Durant. (laughs) I mean, I mean, what's more compelling than letting the two biggest names in the league watch from home.
0: Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> what is funny is that it is actually kind of compelling. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been a, it's been a good. This bubble ended up being a good experiment. I was all worried about the health uh, crisis and and whether this was a good idea. No cases of COVID inside the bubble. Once people acclimated, there were people that came in or were coming in from having COVID and had to be quarantined, but nobody got it in the bubble. So. Seems like the NBA is taking the precautions in order to make the sport fun and safe, and that's exciting stuff.
1: I have to say, in answer to your question about finding uh, finding the team to root for during the playoffs, my recommendation is uh, this is based on my experience is finding the narrative in each series, and and uh, you know immersing yourself in that narrative, and then you know rooting for the team that that you're your perspective particular perspective buys into. Um because I found that in the past, the series that I end up disliking or not watching are the ones where there like either wasn't a prominent 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 narrative or I didn't take the time to to learn those. And so, you know, I either phased it out or just didn't watch it or whatever. And I think that that kind of ruins the the reason why we watch in the first place.
0: Yeah, that's sage advice. I I, I think typically I do that anyways If I'm going to watch a series, I end up buying into some storyline either about a player or a coach or a team. And if I can't do that, uh, I I end up like playing with my phone or doing something else while the game's on. Uh, It's it's too bad that I, I mean, I want to say I just enjoy the sport, but there's highlight reels for that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. And if you're looking for one team, let me offer you this. Um, So there's a player on a team who wants to have a coffee shop when he's done with the NBA <laughs> <laughs> And I hear he's charging $20 for a French press coffee in the bubble to his fellow colleagues. And so I think uh, if you're into entrepreneurism at all, he's your guy. And that's Jimmy Butler of the Miami Heat.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and if you think 20 bucks is too, too much for a cup of coffee, root for TJ Warren in the pages.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: nice. <laughs> Well, I think we covered the the ground pretty well, and if not, well, it is what it is.